Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We started last week looking at verses 23 to 27, and uh, we will finish that up today and probably start moving into the next section. But uh, let's, uh, let me remind you first that in this path, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we know that Matthew's been showing us that Jesus Christ is the King, the Messiah. And now he's, he's showing how he is qualified, and he's showing that he has power over every facet of the curse, over disease, over death, over Satan and demons, over natural elements, animals, pain, everything on earth, and therefore he's qualified to be the rightful heir to the earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Uh, we already saw the first three miracles that he presents. There's nine primary miracles that are presented in chapters 8 and 9. The first three dealt with disease. We've seen those. The next three show his power over natural elements and the supernatural world and over sin. And then later he will demonstrate his power over death. Uh, we started looking at this, and I told you in this, these verses we have four elements. We have the facts, the fear, the authority, and the amazement. And so let's look at the facts again, verses 23 and 24. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Uh, so he, after having been surrounded by a crowd and then confronting the three superficial followers in verses 18 to 22 about the true cost of discipleship, Jesus says, it's time to go, guys. And uh, they were going to go by boat from Capernaum. Uh, to sail perhaps four to six miles to the other side. Uh, Mark tells us in his account that when Jesus got into the boat with his disciples, uh, there were other boats that went along too. And so it seemed that all 12 of uh, the, he and his 12 disciples were in the one boat. And uh, but so the other boats held some others who were serious enough about following Christ that they were willing to sail along with him. And so the statement there, his disciples followed him, simply refers to the disciples other than the members of the 12 who were present. And we talked about last week when it says his disciples, you have to look at the context. Uh, the word itself doesn't tell you anything. Uh, the word simply means pupils, learners, followers. That's all. It's a a very broad word. Uh, so there were learners around Jesus. And uh, just because they're called disciples does not mean they're believers. Uh, that has yet to be determined. Now, the word in and of itself is not an indication of anything other than that they were attracted to Jesus' teaching and they were listening. Uh, we talked about the fact there's at least four categories of disciples uh, that you find in the Gospels. There are the curious disciples. Uh, they follow Jesus, they listen, they're fascinated, they're intrigued, they're enthralled with what he says. The second type were the convinced, that is, they were intellectually convinced. Uh, Nicodemus is a classic illustration. Uh, when he first came to Jesus and talked to him, he says, we know that you're, you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Uh, he, at that point, he was intellectually convinced. As we read the rest of the story, he became uh, fully convinced. And uh, then there's the third kind, or the clandestine or secret disciples, like Joseph of Arimathea, who kept it secret but believed quietly. And finally, there are the committed disciples. They're the bold, open followers of Christ who were publicly and permanently committed to Christ. And so Jesus and his disciples go across, start across the lake. And there comes this terrible storm, and Matthew again emphasizes the suddenness and unexpectedness of it with the word behold. And it was not something they expected when they obeyed Jesus' command to row over to the other side of the, the lake. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is known generally for being quiet and tranquil, but when storms do come, they, it's known for them being sudden and unexpected. As I told you last week, you get these cold fronts that come in off the, from the north and they slam into Mount Hermon, which steers them south down through all these gullies and ravines. 
towards the lake. The lake is 608 feet below sea level. And uh, so everything's going downhill through these ravines very quickly. And it gets to the lake, and of course, the warm water over the lake, it hits that with a cold breeze, and wham, a storm hits. And of course, then there's cliffs on the Golan Heights on the east side, and it just swirls in there and creates intense, intense storms. And uh, so uh, that's where they were. It's nighttime, it's dark. The text says it's a great storm. The Greek word is seismos. Uh, the word means earthquake or uh, a great quaking or a great shaking. The term was used of a serious storm at sea because the surface of the water was tossed around like the surface of the land during an earthquake. But I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the dark, unable to see anything. There are no lights. Remember that. There are no stars to see because of the storm. Uh, and your boat is being tossed around and the wind is howling. And Mark's gospel tells us the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Uh, and then there's that great ending in verse 24. Uh, but Jesus himself was asleep. Uh, Mark tells us he was using the cushion at the back of the boat as a pillow. Uh, so there he is laying on the wooden floor at the back of the boat, the cushion under his head. Uh, probably soaked by water splashing over the boat, and yet he is asleep. And of course, that's all part of God's sovereign plan for what was to take place. So he's sleeping, the sea is raging, the storm is howling, the wind is blowing, the little boat's being tossed around like a cork on the sea, it's filling up with water, and the creator of the world is asleep in the back of the boat. Uh, I see the confidence here that Jesus had in God the Father. Uh, he's so peaceful, he doesn't even fear. He absolutely trusted the Father's care. Uh, you know, I wish I could live that way. Uh, we get tossed around by circumstances in our world, and we begin to mistrust God, and we begin to panic. And the heart of Jesus was perfectly calm. In his divinity, he was omniscient. In his humanity, he's unconscious of his own surroundings uh, because he's confident of God's perfect care of him. And so the storm increases, and undoubtedly these sailor fishermen had done all they could to deal with it. And so that brings us to where we stopped last week, and that is with the fear. Start. Look at verses 25, the beginning of 26. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? As you know, several of the twelve disciples were professional fishermen. So that makes their fear and desperation all the more interesting. Uh, you, you can be certain they had done everything possible to save themselves. And if you think about it, when these guys are so desperate that they ask an ex-carpenter what to do in a storm, uh, you know they're in a lot of trouble. Uh, Jesus had not grown up either on the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. He lived in Nazareth, which was inland. They they hadn't yet decided if he actually is God in flesh, but they do know that their rabbi, their teacher, isn't doing anything to help them out. In fact, he's asleep. But they have seen him perform miracles before, and so they decide he is their last and only hope. And so we read that they wake him up and they say, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And if you put together all the gospel accounts of this incident, what they said in totality is, Save us, Master, we're perishing. Don't you care? Uh, it's full and complete desperation mixed with a little bit of irritability that he is sleeping rather than helping them. They had nowhere, no, nowhere else to turn. Uh, they aren't exactly sure what he can do about their situation, but they're hoping that he can. And they are right where God wanted them. You know, sometimes God has to bring us to the point of desperation to get our attention, doesn't he? Uh, they had run out of human solutions. They had run out of human answers. And their only hope was that the man who could heal lepers and paralytics might be able to do something about their situation. That was their hope. They had a whole lot of fear mixed with a little bit of faith. You see, if they'd had total faith they would have been asleep like him, uh, confident in the Father's care. Because believe me, 
After trying to row the boat in a fierce storm, they were just as physically worn out as he was. The scene couldn't be more dramatic. They, they, they wait until they have come to the end of their own abilities before they ever turn to Jesus for help. Uh, and we're just like them, aren't we? Um, so often we do everything we can in our own strength and our own power to solve a problem before we ever consider asking the Lord for his help. We only go to him in desperation. Uh, the story is told of an old sea captain who was very vocal about his atheism. And one night during a storm, he was washed overboard and his men heard him crying out to God for help. And when he was finally rescued, one of the men said to him, I thought you said you didn't believe in God. To which he replied, well, if there isn't a God, there ought to be for times like that. <laughs> and we've all heard the old adage that there aren't any atheists in foxholes. Uh, well, many of us operate like practical atheists because we don't seek God's help until we are in some kind of metaphorical foxhole. Uh, we suddenly find ourselves facing illness or death in ourselves or our family we lose our job, or we have marital problems, or problems with our children or grandchildren, and we will run to the doctor, to the marriage counselor, to the credit counselor. But when they can't give us any answers, we finally begin to cry out to God in our desperation. Uh, rather than making him the first one that we turn to, we turn to everyone else. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to the doctor, but you need to go to the Lord first. Uh, God is especially, and always, he's always pleased when people turn to him, especially so when it's for salvation. Uh, people can be healed, comforted, saved from financial ruin, and helped in many other ways without God's direct intervention. Uh, but the person who is not saved has absolutely no one else to turn to than the Lord. Uh, God loves to hear the sinner's cry of desperation because realizing one's own inadequacy is the first step in turning to him. And of course, he also loves to hear his own children cry out to him, even in desperation, because it's a sign that they remember to whom they belong. But often our first cry is like theirs. As it's recorded in Mark, it says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Uh, have you ever done that? Uh, you find yourself in some terrible situation and you say to God, God, you just don't care. Uh, or don't you care? That's a lack of faith. You don't understand the depth of his love. Uh, but, by the way, that's nothing new. Uh, even the saints of old did that. Listen to what David says in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In other words, God, you're never around when I need you. Don't you care? Then there are the sons of Korah, Psalm 44, 22 and 23, who said, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. In other words, Lord, we're being massacred for the sake of your name. Wake up. How can you be sleeping through this when we're dying for you? That's not unlike our approach to God. How can you let this happen, God? How can you be so indifferent? How can you be so unkind? How can you let me go through this? Notice Jesus' reply to the disciples in verse 26. It's classic. He says, why are you afraid? Stop right there. You say, what kind of question is that? I mean, these guys are seasoned fishermen who spent their lives on that lake. If they're afraid of the mess that they're in, there's certainly good reason to be afraid, isn't there? It's the middle of the night. There's a fierce storm howling. There's boat is full of water. So why would Jesus ask, why are you afraid? And by the way, the Greek word translated afraid there means cowardly or lacking courage. He says, why are you such cowards? That word is used only three times in Scripture. Uh, it's used here in Matthew and also in Mark's account of the event. 
But the other time, it's very interesting. You know where it's found? Revelation 21.8, where a list of those groups who are going to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity is given. And one of the groups is the cowardly. So this isn't some minor matter. This type of cowardice is a sin. A sin so severe that men and women will all go to hell for all of eternity for it. So what is it? It's a lack of faith and trust in God. Cowards are those who have no faith. Matthew records Jesus' next words as, You men of little faith. Mark's gospel records him as asking, How is it that you have no faith? In other words, why don't you guys trust me? Don't you believe in me and my love and my power? How is it that your faith is so lacking? Those are two key things. If you believe in God's love and God's power, you can weather any storm because, number one, you know God cares about you, and number two, you know we can handle the situation. That's all you need to know, that God loves me and he has the power to deliver me. The disciples were questioning whether or not he cared, and they're questioning whether or not he's able. Yes, they said, save us, Lord, but their faith was so weak that it was almost non-existent. So he says, you men of little faith. And his unspoken words are, what more do you need to see and know about me? What else do you need to see? Think about it. He's performed several miracles at this point. He's turned water into wine. Uh, he has healed a leper, a paralytic, a woman with a high fever, and many, many more, including casting out demons. So they had seen all kinds of miracles. And they all they seemed to have enough faith to believe that he might be able to help them out of this situation because they begged him to save them. But they didn't have the faith to believe that if he was truly who he claimed to be, the Messiah of God, that God wasn't going to let anything happen to him outside of his sovereign will. Isn't it amazing how we can see God demonstrate his power in the lives of others and even in our own lives. But when we see ourselves faced with some problem that seems larger than the others, we seemingly forget about his power altogether. Uh, we say, oh, it's so wonderful what God has done in Charlie's life. Or I just want to share a testimony of how the Lord took care of my daughter and son-in-law when he lost his job and similar kinds of things. And we will praise the Lord for those things with great rejoicing. But as soon as something really tough happens in our own life, we begin to question God's love and question his power and question his wisdom. We begin to distrust God's ability. If you find yourself in financial difficulty that's not due to your own financial irresponsibility and God doesn't rain money out of the sky on you, you begin to believe that God can or won't provide. Uh, or, and so you worry, you get anxious, you panic, you fear. You're cowardly. You don't believe God can take care of you. Either that or you don't believe he can. Uh, it's one of those two or both. You say, oh yeah, he cares, but this problem is just so complex and so convoluted that he just can't do anything about it. Excuse me? <laughs> Or you say, oh yeah, he can solve it if he wanted to, but he just doesn't care. Those are times when we need to hear Jesus say, oh, you of little faith, don't you realize I have your best interest in mind when I brought this into your life? I'm conforming you to my own image. Just trust me. Rest in my sovereign purposes for your life. I'll meet your needs. In fact, I've promised to do so. So just trust me. Now, this is the second time Jesus has referred to the disciples as men of little faith. He had referred to them that way back in chapter 6, verse 30, uh, when he was teaching them about their problem with worry and their need to trust him to provide for their needs. And now he refers to them that way again. He will do the same at least five more times that are recorded for us in the Gospels. Four times to all of the disciples and once just to Peter. 
interestingly, four out of those five times are all recorded in Matthew's gospel. So he was obviously very impressed by Jesus referring to them in that way. We don't know how many more times he said that to them that isn't recorded in Scripture. Uh, finally, after repeatedly hearing this from the Lord, Luke tells us in Luke 17, 5, that the disciples finally said to Jesus, increase our faith. And you know what he did right after that? He healed 10 lepers. Uh, basically, he gave them an object lesson. It's as if he said, okay, guys, take a look at this and see if it'll help strengthen your faith. You see, faith needs constant strengthening. And right at that moment, when the disciples were in the middle of that storm, they needed to go back to what they already knew. These were Jewish men who had been raised on the law and the prophets. They were not educated in the rabbinical traditions, but they had been taught the Old Testament by their parents and rabbis from an early age. They surely knew the Old Testament Psalms, such as Psalm 89, 8 and 9. You know what it says? It says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. How about Psalm 46, 1 to 3? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Maybe they forgot Psalm 107, 23 to 30. I love this one. As I read this, think, think about what we've been studying here in Matthew 8. I'm going to read this from the Legacy Standard Bible because it brings out a couple of points that are really important. One particularly. Psalm 107, beginning verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on many waves, they have seen the works of Yahweh and his wondrous deeds in the deep. He spoke and set up a stormy wind which raised up the winds of the sea. They went up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in the calamity. They staggered and swayed like a drunken man, and all their wisdom was swallowed up. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to stand still so that its waves were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he led them to their desired haven. You see, that psalm is an explicit prophecy of what Jesus was about to do there on the Sea of Galilee. And who does Psalm 107 say they cried out to? Yahweh. Who did, who did they cry out to that calmed the sea in Matthew 8? Jesus. The conclusion is inescapable. It's undeniable. Jesus is Yahweh God. Okay? So the believer who is aware of God's power and love has no reason to be afraid of anything because God can, both can and will, take care of his children. There is no hardship, no danger through which he cannot or will not take them. God's power and love will see us through any storm. And that's the essence of what we need to know and consider when we're in trouble. Well, then the disciples actually had nothing to fear, and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith and trust. And now we come to our third point, which is the authority. Look at the last half of verse 26. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Mark 4.39 says he got up and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Let me just comment for a moment on Mark's account because he records the specific words that Jesus used. Neither Matthew nor Luke tell us, but Mark does. Uh, the New American Standard translates it, hush, be still. The English Standard Version and several other versions say, peace, be still. The word translated hush is an imperative command. 
which is like Jesus ordering the winds and the sea, be silent or become calm. And the word translated be still is an imperative command, meaning to be muzzled or to say nothing uh, or stop making a sound. It's used of, it was used of muzzling a horse or an animal so that it could not open its mouth or make a noise. Uh, but what is interesting about this combination of words is that the first word is in the present tense and the second word is in the perfect tense, uh, which is very rare for an imperative. But they both communicate the idea of be silent and continue to be silent. Uh, or make absolutely no sound and stay that way. That's the idea. All three of the synoptic gospels say that the sea became calm, but both Matthew and Mark note that it was perfectly calm. Now, as you are aware from living near the Gulf of Mexico here in Florida, if the wind stops, the water on the Gulf or on a lake will continue to ripple until the waves have run their course. It takes quite a while for the sloshing of the water to stop because of the energy transfer that takes place in the body of water. But Jesus said, silence. And the large body of water became like glass, perfectly calm. I don't know if you've ever seen a large body of water that was as still as glass, but I have. I, remember, I recall driving across the Bayside Bridge uh, one morning several years ago, and the water on the west side of the bridge there in the bay there was absolutely like glass. From the bridge, uh, from the bridge all the way to the shoreline on the west, far west side, that area is about two miles long and a mile wide, and there were absolutely no ripples at all. Not even the normal small ripples that you see on the surface of a large body of water. It looked like glass. It was perfectly calm. Uh, I've seen small lakes that were calm like that, but never such a large body of water. That's how Matthew and Mark described the Sea of Galilee after Jesus told the storm to be quiet. Now, that's divine power. It's impossible to measure the power of the wind that was present in that storm because we don't know how far it extended. But just in a normal storm, there is an amazing amount of kinetic energy generated through the wind and even more through the rain if that was involved. In fact, according to a study by scientists at Syracuse University, there, listen to this, there is more energy in a typical thunderstorm than, than that which was released during the atomic bomb blast at Hiroshima. That, that, and this wasn't just a typical thunderstorm. This was a massively severe thunderstorm. And Jesus stopped it with a word. This is Matthew's message to us. He is saying this one who can con conquer disease is also the one who can control nature. And later he will tell us that he's the one who controls demons, who forgives sin and who raises the dead. And think about this. He's the one who lives in your life. Well, they had seen Jesus display his divine power. What's their reaction? We find that in verse 27 where we see the amazement. It says, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The word translated amaze refers to extreme astonishment. Uh, the disciples are stunned with amazement. And it says that they're asking one another, what kind of man is this? The Greek word means what sort of or what kind of. It, it, it was also used to refer to someone from some unknown place. So it meant of what country? Uh, in other words, the disciples are saying, what kind of man is this? We don't have a category for him. Where is he from? 
So they say, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? In his parallel account, Mark records that they became very much afraid. So Mark says, when the storm came, they were afraid. And then he says, when Jesus stopped the storm, they were extremely afraid. They were now more afraid of the one who stilled the storm than they had been of the storm itself. Do you realize what's more fearful than being in a storm? Realizing you're standing in the presence of the living God. I'm not sure they recognize him to be God just yet, but they were beginning to realize that, that Jesus was greater by far than, than they had previously, than anything they'd previously imagined. And at that point, being in his presence was far more terrifying than any storm. After God had declared his great power and majesty, Job proclaimed, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple, he declared, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, God, I've got a dirty mouth. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. When Daniel saw God in Daniel 10, he began to shake and quiver, and he says, No strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. In other words, he fell into a heap in the dirt in the presence of God. When Peter called Jesus, or when Peter saw Jesus, miraculously provide the great catch of fish. Luke tells us that he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When the Apostle Peter, uh, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul encountered the resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, it says he fell to the ground. And when he got up, it says, though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And we would be overwhelmed with Christ's glory and holiness if we were in his presence. We'd be unable to stand. These disciples understood that Jesus was no mere man. And the awesomeness of that thought was terrifying. They were in the presence of one who could cure disease and control the forces of nature, who could read their every thought, who knew everything about them. They were in the presence of God. The next boat trip they took that Matthew records for us ended in a similar situation. A storm arose, and suddenly as they're trying to get to shore, here comes Jesus walking on the water. And that's the time that Peter walked on the water until he became afraid and started sinking. And Jesus not only held up his faithless disciple, but he also stopped the storm. And Matthew 14.33 tells us that those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. If there was any doubt after this storm in chapter 8, all doubt was removed the next time. And they recognized that he was the son of God, because even the winds and the sea obey him. I love how the great Bible scholar William Hendrickson closes this section in his commentary on Matthew. He writes, quote, much of what is wrong on earth can be corrected. There are mothers who dry tears, repairmen who fix machines, surgeons who remove diseased tissues, counselors who solve family problems, and so forth. As to correcting the weather, people talk about it, but it takes deity to change the weather. It is Jesus who commands the winds and the sea, and they obey him, end quote. Let me ask you a question. Is he the one who can reverse the curse? Does he have the power to change the earth? Does he have the power to restore the kingdom? The answer is yes. The same Jesus Christ that still the sea is the one who keeps all of those atoms moving in your body. And the one who keeps this earth whirling in space who keeps this universe in balance. That same Jesus Christ is the one who will one day come back and set up his eternal kingdom. 
And the question is, will you be a part of his kingdom by faith? And that brings us to the end of this section. Before we move along, are there any questions or comments? Yes, Frank. I think about the disciples, what I find interesting is they're in the boat and they're terrified. And Jesus was sleeping. And then a short time later, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the upper room, Jesus warned Peter of how he's going to betray Jesus, and Peter said, no way. And then when they're in the garden, he says, stay with me and pray. So he went off to pray. He came back, and what did he do? He found them sleeping. And he woke them up and said, why are you sleeping? Pray so you don't fall into temptation. He went off to sleep. Oh, he went off to pray again, came back, and was sleeping again. It's interesting when they should be having peace because of faith in Jesus, they're not worried about the storm, and they're worried. And when they should be praying because of the severity of temptation, they're sleeping. Mm -hmm. How often do we do the same? We're more worried about what's around us physically, and we tend to forget spiritually that there is an enemy out there that's going to tempt us and want to consume us. That's what we should be praying for. Right. And so like the disciples, many times we don't see those. Yeah. Mark? So why do, uh, why do uh, humans, uh, why are we in fear in front of God? What do you think? His why glorious you? majesty. His holiness. It's it's not a fear of uh, him uh, ending our lives, casting us into all the fire. It's just, uh, we're we're just in awe. Is that what it is? It's just such a shock to the system. I think it's it's the whole complete package. It's everything. I mean, he is holy and we are not. And uh, uh, so to be in the presence of an absolutely perfect, glorious, infinitely, glorious, perfect being is yeah, these, you know, you, you see these, these guys in the word of faith movement, charismatic movement who talk about, well, I, you know, Jesus appeared to me in uh, my mirror when I was shaving this morning and, and garbage like that. And you know, what did you do? Well, we had a chat. You know, it's not real. Because every single time in Scripture when someone is suddenly confronted with a holy, magnificent God, they fall on their face. They fall on their face. Yeah. 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 Adam hid. Mm -hmm. So our reaction to fear is just... Uh... It's not a response. Well, I, I just wondered about the psychology. Why, well, I know we go down. It's, it's evidence in Scripture of everybody that confronts the Holy God. It stands up on the face of down, for sure. But uh, I'm just, my curiosity is, uh, and what provokes that? Now, you, you said that, yeah, you're in the presence of the infinite Holy God. But I'm just wondering, is there a connection between that and the fact that you go down? I mean, is this just an automatic thing? determined by God what's going to happen. No, I don't know. That, I think it's our response to that. Daniel, what did he say? My, he, he, he says, my skin became a deathly pallor. In other words, he just white, grayish white, all the blood drained out of him. That's obvious fear and, all, and of the majesty before him. Marcia? I think he opened, when you see pureness, your own eyes are open and you see how guilty you are. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what it sounds like he's saying, they're saying mm -hmm. is, oh, woe is me. It's like their eyes are open more to what we should be. To their own sin. And then we feel so wretched. Mm -hmm. I think it's our inability to, to, to know or equate something with holiness. I mean, I remember trying to teach children, this is the Holy Bible, but I couldn't equate anything in our modern world that was holy. So I'm not sure that we have the ability. Yeah, holiness is a hard concept to wrap your mind around. It is. Uh, because we are anything but. <laughs> we are very unholy. Uh, but to say that he is utterly set apart from everything, all sin, all unrighteousness, 
He is utterly set apart from and from any taint of anything else on earth or in the universe. Nothing has tainted his his character and being. That's a hard concept, and that is a tough one to teach children. Uh, so because that's that's hard for adults to wrap their mind around. There's so. nothing we can equate hope right. in our world. Right. Nothing. Good point, Richard. Just think you're driving around. Maybe this is just me, but you're driving down the city road under the speed limit. You look in your rearview mirror. You see a car with a light bar up on the roof, but the light's not on. You suddenly are aware of your sinful character. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a police officer doing his job, who's just as much a sinner as me, no doubt, and yet he has authority. Now, standing before Almighty God, nobody stands before No, no. Good point. Anything else? It's good. All right. Well, let's let's spend the next ten minutes and start begin just begin looking at this next section, verses twenty-eight to thirty-four. It says when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at the uh, distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. I think by now, if you've been following along in the study of Matthew, which I know you have been, it's obvious that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is presenting Jesus as what? What's his? No. Nope. He's presenting Jesus to be king, Messiah. You know, Matthew presents him as king. Mark presents him as servant. Luke presents him as the son of man. And John presents him as the son of God. As God. Okay. Matthew is presenting him as the Messiah, King of Israel. God has determined to redeem the earth, the universe, and certain elect from mankind from the curse of sin. And in order to do that, he is going to come into the world in human flesh, and he's exercised his power and authority over Satan and his demon host. So it's Matthew's concern as he writes this marvelous gospel that we understand that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the rightful ruler of the world, the king of the earth, the monarch of all monarchs, the son of God, God in human flesh, God incarnate, second member of the Trinity. In other words, it's deity that we must see in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he wants us to see him as king. Now, one of the major factors in proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah is to show that he has power over the unseen forces of the supernatural world, the demon host. If Jesus is, in fact, to redeem the earth and reverse the curse and take possession of his chosen people from among fallen humanity, it must be that he can overpower that which holds all of the earth and its inhabitants in its control right now. And that, of course, is Satan and his demons. So the one who would take back all of this would have to be one who could break the power of the supernatural world. And therefore, repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we find occasions where the writer gives us example of Jesus' ability to cast out demons. He can do it instantaneously. And he does it authoritatively. He does it with just a word. He does it with ease and gives us a clear proof that he can handle the kingdom of darkness. Now, it's interesting to me 
that we've already seen that Jesus Christ can resist Satan. Back in chapter 4, we studied the temptation of Christ by Satan. Uh, and we saw that Satan tempted him in three specific temptations, and in each one, the Lord was victorious. So we know that Christ has the power to resist Satan. He has the power to thwart him. We might say that we already know that he confronted Satan but never gave in. But his power is even beyond that. It's not only a power matter of him being able to thwart Satan or to prevent Satan from doing something uh, or accomplishing a certain end. It's not only that he never gave in, it's also that he causes Satan and his host to give in to him. It's not just that what Satan cannot do, it's what he can do to Satan. And that's what we see here in this text. Uh, we have seen the perfection of Christ in his temptation. He never gave in. Now we see the power of Christ, that he makes the demons give in to him. He subdues them. So there is the resistant power and there is the overcoming power of Christ, showing us both dimensions of his ability to deal with the kingdom of darkness. Uh, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3.8 that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, in other words, our Lord came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And ultimately, when he established his kingdom, that is exactly what will happen. He will incarcerate Satan uh, for and all of his demon hosts for a thousand years while he reigns in his millennial kingdom. At the end of that thousand years, Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be released he will go out and deceive the nations and lead them in a revolt against Christ. If you think about it, it is a repeat of the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Uh, for a thousand years, mankind will live in a perfect environment with every animal at peace with one another and with mankind. They will live with a king who is perfect, assisted by perfect governors, glorified saints who will reign with him and those people will experience a perfect earth just like the Garden of Eden. All the people on earth who enter the millennium will all be believers, but their children who are born during that time will have unredeemed souls unless they choose to follow Christ. Death will still be present, but people will return to living extremely long lives like they did before the flood. Uh, and all of those who are born during that time will again, have freedom of choice, just as Adam and Eve had before the fall. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released, and Revelation 20, verse 8 says, he will go forth to deceive the nations. That's the same thing he did in Genesis 3. So despite having lived under the reign of the perfect King Jesus in a perfect environment and world, all of those unredeemed people will choose to follow Satan just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But this time, God will destroy them all, cast Satan into hell, and then the great white throne judgment takes place, at which time they and every other unbeliever from all of history will be eternally cast into hell. And Jesus Christ is the one who will judge them. You know, one of the questions that came, out of our, that came in for our elder Q&A that we didn't get to because of time, we'll, you'll hear it again at the next thing, but I'm going to answer it here. Uh, the... The questioner was astounded that people would follow Satan after having lived under the millennial reign of Jesus for a thousand years. And the question concluded with these words. Who would foolishly join up with Satan at this point? I mean, if Satan has been bound, he hasn't influenced them like he does now. So how can this be? Maybe this tells me more about sin than I can imagine. That's exactly right. That's how deceptive Satan is and how it's evil and easily deceived the unredeemed, unredeemed human heart really is. It will rebel against God at the first opportunity, just like Adam and Eve did. You'll hear that question again, as I said, answered it at the Q&A, next Q&A. It's a good question. None of you wrote it, so I went ahead and answered it now. But uh, let me get off that bunny trail and, well... Let me stop. Uh, we'll stop there and uh, pick this up next week and continue. Any other thoughts?
Yes, Norm. Is fear sinful in the context of what we spoke about before? How we would rightly fear and fall in our faces before Christ, and then in the same context of Christ telling us often, "Do not fear." And then in the context of what you just said, how do we do fear and place it appropriately? I think that. You have to differentiate between what kind of fear are we talking about. Um, if if you're walking along on a path in the woods, and suddenly there's a rattlesnake that starts rattling and getting ready to strike, there's a natural innate sense of fear of being bitten. That you can, I'm not sure that you would say that's a wrong kind of fear to have. That is normal and natural, God-given to protect you from danger. So there is a certain kind of fear. Fear to protect you from danger is not wrong. But fear based on uh, being in situations that uh, where you should naturally trust God, you know, like, uh, okay, your doctor gives you a bad diagnosis. And uh, it's one that could potentially end your life. Uh, and I've seen Christians who are professing believers who had an innate, I mean, just a, I shouldn't say innate, had a strange, horrible fear of death. That should not be a pattern of a believer in Christ. That should not be the pattern of their life. But I've seen it happen many times. There's just an overwhelming sense of fear of death. And I'm thinking, why would you be afraid to die? Um, so there's certain times that fear is good for protection from danger. But then there's other times that fear is a lot, demonstrates a lack of trust in God. And that he loves you and is providing for you and will care for you and whatever takes place. You have anything to add to that, Frank? Okay. Yes, Cheryl? Something that I've heard before. This is one of three times where Jesus has a blind First time was when he was in the manger. Frank, close this, please.